This is How We See It, a look at issues that impact our faith and community. For the next few minutes, we'll explore topics with people who are making a difference in our world. This is How We See It. I'm Deacon Mike Sweeney, and our guest is Father Victor Amoros. Father Victor. Hello there. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Father is the pastor of St. John Vianney on the beach. Mm-hmm. Very nice. But also the director of the Office of Worship for the Diocese. Correct. Which is the main reason why you're in today. Now, the Office of Worship assists Bishop Parks in his mission as the promoter and guardian of the liturgical life of the diocese. They coordinate diocesan liturgies, the rite of election, chrism, mass, ordinations. They develop programs and workshops, and they provide formation for, well, everybody. Correct. And there's a lot to discuss there. (laughs) There's a lot to unpack there. So if people have ever attended any of the major liturgies in the diocese over the years, they quickly learn that a lot of work goes into those liturgies because everything seems so flawless. Talk about that. How does everything come out so perfectly? Well, the goal is for it to come off flawless. If it appears that way, then it means we've done our job. More often than not, there's usually a handful of things that we recognize were not flawless, but there's a lot of work that goes into preparing these liturgies beforehand, gathering of resources. I'm new to this position as of January of this year, so when a big liturgy comes up, I like to meet with Bishop Parks and with his MC, Father Ralph D'Elia, just to kind of see what his mind is and how we want to incorporate his ideas and what the church allows and what the rites say we can do and cannot do. And then it's a matter of putting everything together and carrying it out. I like to describe my role as kind of the composer. So my responsibility for a lot of these big liturgies is to compose it, to put everything together. And then I work with Father Ralph, who again is the bishop's MC, to kind of train the altar servers and the other MCs who are assisting us. And Father Ralph's kind of more of the conductor. So he conducts kind of what I've put together. And then we try to make something beautiful for the Lord. The goal of divine worship is to offer fitting praise to God. It's our work that goes into that, but that's ultimately the goal. And I think in the Diocese of St. Petersburg, we have a long, long tradition and history of doing very beautiful liturgy. And so I'm grateful to come into this position and to build off the legacy that I've inherited and the many resources that are available because of Mr. Doug Riatini, who was in this position for 25 years, I want to say. So he definitely built a foundation for me to kind of stand on. And so if things appear flawless, it's because there's a lot of work that went in ahead of time. So that's masses, liturgies happening on a diocesan level, but a lot of your work has to do with the local parishes. Local parishes learn the do's and don'ts of liturgy from you and your office, but where do you learn the do's and don'ts of liturgy? First and foremost, seminary is where I learned a lot of things. Father Alfredo Hernandez was one of my main professors when it came to the liturgy. He's currently the rector of St. Vincent de Paul Regional Seminary in Boynton Beach, And I worked closely with him, not just in class, but with a few other assignments I had at the seminary and learned a lot, made a lot of mistakes and was corrected pretty frequently. That's how you learn. And the big thing that he taught me was to constantly go back to the sources. So when it comes to things like the mass, in my office, we do get a lot of questions about things that are happening in parishes around the mass. Can we do this? Can we not do this? A lot of times it's just a matter of going back to our main source for the Mass, which is the Roman Missal, and looking at, okay, what does the Roman Missal allow? What does it not allow? If you're not familiar with the Roman Missal, it's the big red book that the priest uses at Mass. I like to describe it as the instruction manual for the Mass. It contains the prayers that the priest prays, including the most important prayer, the Eucharistic prayer. But it also has a lot of instructions for the priest to do, and the deacon as well to do, 
And then in the front of that book is the general instruction of the Roman Missal, which I call the instruction manual to the instruction manual. And it goes into a lot more detail about what can happen. And my big MO when it comes to the liturgy is if the church gives you an option, take one of the options. If there's not an option, you do not have the freedom to take the option because the liturgy is not ours. It's not our plaything. It belongs to the entire church. And so when those questions come up, if I don't know the answer off the top of my head, which is very frequently, I will consult the books and then get back to them. Do the red and say the black. Basically, do the red and say the black, as they say. Yeah, and what that is, is in the Roman Missal, this big red book, in there, there is red font that will tell you the little instructions, and then the black is the actual text that you are verbalizing. Correct, yeah. So the red text would tell you, for instance, you know, the priest extends his hands, or with hands joined, or at the altar, at the chair, at the ambo. So it's those little red instructions. So that's a classic liturgy phrase, is to do the red, say the black. One of the jobs of your office is to train the trainers from parishes. Can you tell us about some of the workshops that you offer throughout the year? So this is an interesting question because historically our office offers these. Since January, we've had a difficult time trying to find an associate to work with me in the office full time. Because as a pastor of a parish in a school, there's a limited amount of time that I can give to the office and to the diocese. And so just because we've had trouble finding somebody until very, very recently— Because we've had difficulty finding somebody, I haven't been able to offer the workshops that we've offered in the past. But historically, we offer workshops for readers, for extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion, for greeters and ushers, for sacristans. And the goal is, the idea is, especially going into next year, or at least maybe even as soon as this upcoming ministry year, is to get back to offering some of these workshops on maybe a quarterly basis so that liturgical ministers and parishes or liturgical coordinators in their parishes can come to these workshops, maybe gain some new insights and bring those back to their parishes as they train their readers and extraordinary ministers and all of the above. With regard to the Holy Eucharist, the Blessed Sacrament, have you noticed on a diocesan level any abuses happening? I don't know. It happens from time to time in parishes. I've seen this from time to time in different parishes over the years. But I know my own parish, we were dealing with this in the fall. We were finding sacred hosts discarded, stuck under pews on the floor, really tragic things, gut-wrenching things that we were finding the host. We believe as Catholics so deeply that the Eucharist, the Blessed Sacrament, Holy Communion is the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, that when we see the host, the sacred host mistreated, it is gut-wrenching. I haven't heard of this happening on a large diocesan scale But like I said, I think especially in parishes where there might be kind of a more transient population, certainly where we are on the beach, you've got people vacationing and visiting any given week. Parishes where families are inviting friends or family members who are not Catholic to attend, sometimes with children, sometimes with the elderly. It happens in all sorts of different ways. But in these years of the National Eucharistic Revival, it gives us all an opportunity to reflect more deeply on, okay, what do we believe? What does the church believe when it comes to Eucharist? And what are the little ways that we abuse the Blessed Sacrament? And this is something we've been focusing on in my parish over the last few months, but even something, and I know this is controversial, but even something like leaving Mass after communion. We started pointing out that when you do this on a regular habitual basis, not because of an emergency, you left the stove on, the baby blew out a diaper or something like that, somebody's in the hospital, you have to rush out. Those are emergencies. But when on a regular habitual basis, somebody leaves Mass after communion, this is an abuse of the Blessed Sacrament. And it's not the same necessarily as somebody taking a host and desecrating it. 
but it's a subtle form of abuse. And so as we call these out and try to raise everybody's reverence and respect for the Eucharist in all these different ways, I'm hoping that we won't see issues like you described happening anymore. We're talking with Father Victor Amaros from the Office of Worship in the Diocese. Holy Days of Obligation can be a source of confusion. Does it fall on a weekend? Is it an obligation? Is it not an obligation? This diocese, while it is, and another, and how do you stave off some of the confusion that happens with some of those holy days? I don't know if it's possible to stave off the confusion. We try. We have posted on the worship page on the diocesan website a list of the dates of Holy Days of Obligation for the upcoming year. We try to post that up there so people can see, because it is confusing. If what is usually a Holy Day of Obligation falls on a Saturday or a Monday, then that obligation is lifted because it falls so closely to a Sunday. There's all these little nuances and everything. And like you described, some dioceses, when it comes to not so much Corpus Christi, uh, but some of the big feast days, Ascension, you know, they've been transferred here for a number of years, I think since the year 2000. But in a couple dioceses up north, they're still on the day that they would normally be celebrated, like a Thursday. And so if people come from up north, they might be confused because up there it was a holy day of obligation. Here it's been transferred to a Sunday to make it easier for people to attend. It's all very, very complicated. And I don't expect your average Joe, even somebody working in a parish, to be able to keep this memorized. I can't keep this memorized, and I'm the mm-hmm. director of the Office of Worship. I have to constantly go back and consult these resources. So that's why the resources exist. What is the most common question you receive as the director? I don't know. There's, I do get a number of calls from priests, and I would say probably the majority of the questions come up around the celebration of matrimony, whether it's the timing— Should we be celebrating a Sunday Mass for this wedding if it happens so late on a Saturday? Would this technically be a vigil versus celebrating it early on a Saturday? Very technical things. But the liturgy worship is is something that's very beautiful, but there's some complications with it. It's not something that we can do accidentally. So I get a number of phone calls from priests or from priest secretaries who are calling on behalf of their priests with some of these questions. And I think the majority probably, like I said, would have to do around marriage and matrimony. Have you ever seen abuses of the liturgy in your years, first as a parishioner, growing up as a child, and then eventually as a seminarian, and now as a member of the clergy, have you seen abuses? Can I plead the fifth? Um, (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) No, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, growing up, I'm a cradle Catholic. I'm a fruit of this diocese. I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. And I always say when I give presentations on the liturgy, when I teach seminarians about this, or if I'm talking to a group of lay people, look, I'm not informing you of these things so that you can become liturgy police. We're not out here to narc on anybody or to start policing the liturgy. But as you read more about what the church teaches about how the liturgy ought to be celebrated, how worship should take place, it's easy to get frustrated because you see how infrequently some of these things take place. And it's for a number of reasons. I think the great majority of what we might call, quote, abuses, unquote, would be not necessarily out of malice, but out of ignorance, even among priests, just because especially with older priests. Maybe they went to seminary at a time where these things were not emphasized in their formation, or we had this translation change that happened in 2011, in the advent of 2011. And I know that was very difficult for a number of priests who have been celebrating Mass for decades, you know, using a particular translation, and then to have this thrown on them makes it difficult. We could look at these things, and we could get upset with people. We could pray for them. I think that's the main thing I recommend to people when they notice these Abuses like, hey, that shouldn't be happening. First and foremost, pray for that priest, that deacon, or that minister who's doing that. And if you find it appropriate, you might want to talk to the pastor and say, hey, like, I noticed this. But again, don't be a liturgy cop. 
when we have that posture where we're critiquing constantly, where we approach the liturgy, well, okay, let's see how so-and-so is going to mess up this time. We're not able to enter into that worship that it's supposed to be. On the other side, when I give presentations to priests and deacons and those who are responsible for the liturgy, I try to emphasize this fact, as I mentioned earlier, the liturgy is not our plaything. This belongs to the church, which includes the people of God. So it's not something that we can be willy-nilly with. And when we take these liberties and start making things up or changing things according to our own will, not the mind of the church, it makes it more difficult for people to enter into worship and enter into that praise of the living God. Pope Francis has written about this a number of times as he's written documents and letters about the liturgy. These are my words, not his, but again, it comes back to this idea that the liturgy is not our plaything. There's a way that we are presented to pray. When there's an option, take the option. When there's not, please do not be creative. How much flexibility does a parish have with the celebration of a liturgy? I've heard a story of a church in New York who on Good Friday would have a liturgical dancer dance around with like this long length of fabric and it would eventually end up somehow on the crucifix of Christ. How much flexibility does a typical parish have to do something like that? I think that the current Roman Missal allows for a great deal of freedom. Of course, in order to act on that freedom, you have to know what the text says. And again, where there are options to take those options and where there are not to not be creative. But things like liturgical dance or particular genres of music, if you want to use that word genre or approaches to music in the sacred liturgy. You know, some of these things are not necessarily forbidden from the text. It doesn't say that you cannot do these things. But I think it's also important to say, is this the right time and place for X, Y, or Z? So parishes have a good deal of freedom. I think more often than not, to get back to an earlier question about abuses that we've witnessed growing up in the church, I think that it's important to not judge okay, is this right or wrong based off of our experience, but based off of what the church says from the documents. A professor I mentioned earlier, Father Alfredo Hernandez, who taught liturgy in the seminary during my time, at the beginning of class, he would often remind us when he would have us practice blessings or practice baptisms or celebrating the mass, please ignore everything you've ever seen from your home parish. He would always tell us, please ignore everything. Just do it according to the book. Practice it according to the book so that you know what the church asks. I think a lot of parishes, they develop these small tea traditions because they've done things this way. You know, we've always had the living nativity during the gospel at the vigil mass for Christmas at the family Christmas Eve mass. Or we've always, like you described, this dancer on Good Friday. These are kind of small tea traditions. And it can be difficult to let go of some of these traditions. But I think during this Eucharistic revival, this is a good time for parishes and liturgical committees to sit down together and say, okay, this is what we've been doing. Is this what we want to continue doing? Is this really in line with what the church thinks we should be doing? Maybe the answer for a lot of those things is yes. Maybe for some of them, it's no. It's time to leave those in the past. So if you had somebody call your office, say just a layperson from a parish in the diocese, and they posed a question like that, a lot of times your answer is going to be, there's really not an answer for you. Well, if it's a parishioner who's calling me about, hey, Father Victor, I saw such and such at my parish on Sunday, I'll take down the information and say, you know what, let me talk to your pastor, you know, because I don't, again, I'm not trying to empower people to narc on their priests or to become liturgical cops or anything like that. If it's something as serious, especially if there's a recording or something and somebody brings that to our attention, of course, I'm going to bring that to the bishop and see how he wants to handle it. But if somebody comes to me with this, say, hey, Father, I saw this, is this allowed? 
you know, I'll look up the particular instance that they're talking about and give them an answer according to the text of the book. But if they're calling out a specific thing from a specific priest or deacon or minister, usually I'll want to talk to that parish first. So I'm talking to a representative of the parish and not just somebody who was upset because something happened at Mass that they didn't like. One of the hot topics, I'm sure, is music within your office because... As a music director myself, I think the most common complaint that I get is basically people want to rock out with the music. They want trendy sort of stuff, but as a music director, it's really not my job to entertain like that. So how does your office spread the word of what music is and what it isn't within the diocese? This is another topic that is a goal that we haven't been able to necessarily address so far in my time there since January. But long term, this is a priority for me. I come from a music background myself. I took piano lessons for 11 years of my life growing up until high school and I found piano boring and I started teaching myself bass guitar and I started playing in bands with friends and we started a life teen mass at my home parish. Well, we didn't, I didn't, the pastor did. I started playing music at that life teen mass Music kept me involved in the church, going into college, and it was through all that that I discerned a vocation to the priesthood. So I'm very sensitive to this, especially the use of contemporary music at Mass. But the more that I've studied our rich tradition, with a capital T, and the more that I've studied church documents, Sacrosanctum Concilium, which is the Constitution on Divine Liturgy, the General Instruction of the Roman Missal, which I spoke about earlier, the more that I dive into this, the more I realize that while contemporary music, praise and worship, things like that, are very beautiful expressions of prayer— There's a time and a place for them. Personally, I'm not always convinced that the Mass is the right place for that, to use your words, to be rocking out. There's definitely a strong desire for that among people. I mean, this is, the style of music is in line with what we listen to on the radio or stream on Spotify or YouTube or your streaming platform of choice. Pop music in this way is designed to kind of resonate with us in the best of cases and kind of pull our heartstrings in the worst of cases. It's designed to do that, the rhythm of the drums and, and the melodies and things like that. But there's this rich tradition of sacred music that does these things in a different way, that lifts up our minds and our souls in a different way. And for some reason, we've developed kind of an aversion to this, you know, as, as modern men and women. We have this aversion to sacred music. I don't know how to bridge that gap. And I'm not one who listens to Gregorian chant or something on my own, you know, as I'm working. I'm listening to all sorts of things. Again, big music background. So I'm listening to all sorts of alternative music, indie music, church music, praise and worship, things like that. But there's a time and a place for it. And when it comes to the mass, I think we could grow in our understanding of what sacred music is and the place that it has. I don't know how to do that. It's an interesting question. I honestly, I haven't gotten too many calls or questions about this in my seven months so far in the office. I'm sure that'll come up. This is not an invitation to call (laughs) (laughs) with these questions or, or with ideas on that. But we are looking at, in addition to offering workshops for readers and extraordinary ministers, Holy Communion and things like that, we are looking at doing workshops for clergy and for music directors and cantors and choir members as well as like, okay, what does the church teach when it comes to what's appropriate at Mass versus, say, a period of exposition or adoration? You know, praise and worship might be much more fitting for something like that than at a Sunday Mass. The church does have instructions and teachings when it comes to what is appropriate and is not appropriate at Mass. This isn't merely a matter of personal opinion, but this touches on something that's so near and dear to people's hearts that it can be a tricky thing to talk about. And you are not saying that you're no longer going to hear praise no. and worship music in no. Mass. No, no, no. <laughs> okay, so don't no, no, call no. him. No, no, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't call me about that. You can call me about if you have other questions. But talking about parishes and their small tea traditions, there's some parishes 
where maybe they have a Lifetime Mass and that's part of that style of worship, you know. So I'm not saying that that should be or will be shut down or anything like that. I'm not saying that at all. But just kind of sharing some of my own development, understanding of this as I've grown and, and studied this more and more. It's all about elevating worship. So how can an average parish elevate their own worship? When it comes to elevating the worship, I think first and foremost, my recommendation is for the pastor, the priests, deacons, and the liturgy committee, if there's one at the parish, to go back to the sources. You know, we've been doing this in my own parish slowly over the last year, going back and reading the general instruction of the Roman Missal together and saying, okay, we've read these 10 or 15 paragraphs over the last two months. What stood out to you? What surprised you about what the church teaches? What does it say that we should be doing that we're not doing? What is it saying that we should be doing that we are doing? You know, let's discuss this. I think that's a great way to look at, to first evaluate, how are we celebrating the mass according to the mind of the church? And then to look at, okay, so here's what we've been doing. What can we do to, as you said, to elevate that, to lift that up to a higher level? It's easy to talk about, kind of muse on. It's a lot more difficult to carry out. But to get back to an earlier question about music and appropriate music at Mass, this is one area where it can be done. If we focus on quality music, beautiful music, not just music that's pleasing to me, but music that really touches on beauty, not just being pretty, but beauty, homilies that preach truth, not just things that we want to hear or things that sound nice, but truth. We start getting to these transcendentals of truth and beauty and goodness I think when we allow those to guide our plans when it comes to the liturgy, when it comes to celebrating the Mass, I think that helps elevate things a little bit versus, well, I like this or I like that or, you know, well, growing up, you know, Father so-and-so did it this way and so I'd like to see this brought back. These things could be nice and they could have had their place, but again, I personally, I try to be motivated by those transcendentals, the true, the good, the beautiful. If you're demanding a certain type of music and a certain type of homily and a certain type of the way the Mass is presented, are you really worshiping at that point? Yes. Are you worshiping the living God or are you worshiping, you know, yourself and your own desires? That's something that I wrestle with as well. Because as I've studied this, not just in seminary, I should have mentioned earlier also, I do have a postgraduate degree in sacramental theology. So I've studied this pretty extensively and I can fool myself into thinking I have all the answers. So I can get frustrated very easily when I think, ah, oh, things should be this way or oh, it should be this way, even in my own parish where you know I'm the pastor. And when we start approaching worship in that way, we got to be very careful because, yeah, I think we can start worshiping our own ideas. We try to make God in our own image. And what I've been preaching about more recently and trying to live out more and more in my own life is this idea that we're supposed to conform to Christ. Part of that is a submitting of ourselves. Recently in a gospel, Jesus said, come and learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart. We can't learn from him if we are not also meek. And humble of heart. Learning takes some humility. It takes, first of all, recognizing I don't know everything, even though we convince ourselves that we do. And it also recognizes that, okay, this person, Christ, the Word of God made flesh, the Son of God, he has the answers that I'm looking for. He's the one that we come to worship. Really, I should say it's the Father that we come to worship, and we worship the Father through Christ in the Holy Spirit. And so that takes a submission on our part. As modern American men and women, we find that very, very difficult because we make our own way and we're self-made men and women in a lot of ways. But what the church proposes, what Christ proposes through the church is this idea of submitting to him and to have that humility to say, yeah, maybe I don't have all the answers when it comes to this. And maybe what I want, maybe my desires are not necessarily what's best for me. I think if we sit with that question, are my desires, whether it comes to music preferences at mass or what we do with our free time, you know, are my desires really leading me closer to the Father's heart or are they leading me away from him? The final question is the easiest. You can thank me later. Funeral eulogies. Nice and easy topic, right? Yeah. 
<laughs> is that the question? Funeral eulogies? Question mark? <laughs> <laughs> Need I ask anything else? Funeral eulogies. This is one of those kind of cultural phenomena that have popped up. I don't know. This isn't something that I've particularly devoted a lot of time to studying. So I apologize if I misspeak. But I think the history of the eulogy, and the word eulogy means good word, to speak a good word about somebody, to speak a good word about the deceased. I think historically these would have taken place at a vigil, which we used to call the service at the funeral home the night before. Historically, that's when these good words would have been spoken. People come together. There would have been a receiving line for the family or friends of the deceased as people arrive. Somebody or multiple people would speak a good word. Then there would be the evening. And then the next morning, there would be that procession to the church for the funeral mass. And then after the funeral mass, a procession to the cemetery for the burial. For whatever reason, we have compressed this multi-step funeral process into one thing in the funeral mass. And so we want to do everything at the funeral mass. And we force it to carry this weight that it's not designed to carry. So can the eulogy happen within the context of a funeral mass? I guess technically, we found ways. We found ways for years to make this work. A lot of times you'll see the concession that the priest will allow this to take place after communion, before the final commendation and the final blessing and dismissal. I've seen happening more and more frequently at some parishes, the eulogy happening before the funeral mass even begins. So this is a way that it can happen. Everybody's gathered together. You know, there's always people that show up late anyways. So this is an opportunity for them to have a little bit of a buffer. It allows the priest or the deacon, whoever's preaching, to hear a little bit more about the deceased from somebody who knew them well. And it also allows the priest or deacon, as they're listening, to maybe in the context of the homily or throughout the Mass, maybe to offer some corrections for some misguided bad theology that might come out in the eulogy, which you don't have the opportunity to do if somebody's speaking after communion before the final blessing. I think eulogies are beautiful. I think they're very healing. As somebody who listens to a lot of eulogies, as somebody who's given eulogies, somebody who's helped guided people write eulogies and deliver them. There's something very powerful about the whole process of collecting thoughts and figuring out what to say about the deceased and what to highlight, what not to highlight, and how to present that in a way that's loving and speaking a good word. There's something very beautiful about that and very healing and important part of the grieving process. But should it be in the funeral mass? If you look through the right, nowhere in the right does it say anything about a eulogy happening anywhere. There is an instruction at one point for the priest or deacon for the homily that the homily should not be a eulogy, that it should not eulogize the deceased. But the homily at a funeral mass is really supposed to talk about the paschal mystery of Christ, his suffering, death, and resurrection, and how this experience of grief allows us to enter into that, and how Christ's resurrection gives us a glimpse of hope in the midst of this sadness. That's what the homily at a funeral is supposed to be. More often than not, though, we kind of see them kind of slip into this eulogizing mode. So I'm not saying that you should go back to your and say, oh, you shouldn't do these at the funeral mass. If you do have some kind of liturgical responsibilities in your parish, you work in a funeral ministry, or if you yourself are a pastor and associate, I do think it's worthwhile looking at, okay, when would be the appropriate time to do the eulogy? Perhaps it is maybe before the funeral mass begins as the family is gathering together as a way of hearkening to the past of that happening at the vigil, which would have happened before the funeral mass anyways. Our guest today has been Father Victor Amoros from the Office of Worship here in the diocese, also the pastor of St. John Vianney on the beach. And this is How We See It. Thanks for listening to today's program. This presentation and others like it are made possible by supporters like you. If you'd like a copy of today's program, make comments or suggestions, and to help us keep this important programming on the air, visit myspiritfm.com slash howwesee it.